Welcome to episode 24 of the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief of BP Boston, Ben Carsley. Ben, it's been about a month or so since we spoke. Um, pretty exciting last couple of weeks of Red Sox baseball. Yeah, it's uh, they're in a pretty good position compared to where we where we left off when it looks like they might be headed the other way. So excited to uh, talk a little shop here and hopefully be even more happy when I speak to you in another uh, three or four weeks. Yes, yes, we can we can dream big things for for that next discussion. Hopefully there will there will be one by that time. Um, but uh, the Red Sox just punctuated what was. A pretty outstanding stretch um, by sweeping the Yankees for the first time at, at home since 1990 uh, over a four-game series. So it was pretty impressive, uh, that whole thing, considering that uh, their starters, which had been so good um, as of late, weren't very good during this series. But they just continued to fight back and had a number of uh, games where they won when they were coming from behind. So that was really impressive in its own right. Um, but I think that the single most impressive performance has to be Hanley Ramirez, who was actually just named uh, AL Player of the Week, uh, who had four home runs in that series, including a walk-off on Thursday night, uh, and then a two-home run uh, performance in the finale of that series. So uh, let's just chat about that for a little bit, because there were just so many cool things to talk about in that series. Yeah, you're just not... <laughs> It, you, you don't expect that to come off of off of Dylan Batances, and I know that he's slowed down a bit as of late, as his you know sort of cumulative workload over the past few years looks like it might be catching up with him. But even with his little mini slump in mind, you know that's just not something you can ever expect. So that was pretty special, especially because you know I was following the game on Twitter that night, and everybody was complaining about how this team couldn't win big games and they never come back late and they hadn't had a walk-off hit yet this year and all this stuff and that just seemed like you know that took all those monkeys off the back at once um and then obviously the two home run game basically winning them winning them that game in the series as well a uh, little bit of uh, i view it as a little bit of revenge for 10 years ago when the yankees pulled out the uh second boston massacre and sort of ended the 2006 red sox playoff hopes this was a uh, this was a nice twist on that yeah, you know, I do remember that. I remember that series quite well, and that was that was a terrible experience. Um, even coming off the heels of winning just two years earlier, it was really painful. So I can only imagine how Yankees fans feel right now, and I'm really happy that they're feeling that. So <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 definitely a good thing. But the, the first thing I thought about, and I was going to get to this a little bit later in the show, but I wanted to talk about this because. Last week on the show, it was coming off of the Toronto series where they had that massive win against Toronto where it was there was like three or four lead changes, and they ended up pulling that game out, um, giving them a two-game lead in the AL East. And at the time, I thought that was the biggest win of the, of the season so far. Um, but I have to say, I think that the reaction to the win uh, on Thursday night where Hanley Ramirez hit the walk-off home run was actually even more uh, explosive, you know, on Twitter and throughout Red Sox Nation, kind of everywhere. And I'm wondering if you think that was because of the fact that it was the Yankees or the fact that it was a home run that won the game in walk-off fashion. Like, what was it about that? Because I think those two, importance-wise, are extremely close. If not, I might actually weigh towards the Toronto game in the long term having been the more important of the two games. 
So I want to get your take on that. Yeah, that's that's tough to answer. I think it being the Yankees certainly has something to do with it. Um, a walk-off probably has something as well. I think I already you know talked about the fact that it's just so impressive coming off Patances. And I don't know exactly why, even after the Toronto win, which you're right, was, was a spectacular win, I don't know why there was this sort of pervasive feeling that they, they couldn't win in, in these close games and, and couldn't come back if they're if their offense hadn't been firing all game. But that just, maybe the fact that so much of it happened with two outs in the ninth, you know, it wasn't just right. a walk-off, but it was just a very dramatic buildup. Uh, and in the back of your mind, you kept, you know, your, 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 your mind kept telling you this isn't going to happen, but your heart and the back of your mind were like, well, I don't know, I don't know. They're getting to the good part of the lineup. So it just felt like more of a season-defining uh, moment or inning, I guess, maybe because it was a little more concentrated than it was in Toronto. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a old school 16-bit video game analogy here. It was sort of like uh, beating the Death Egg on Sonic 2 with just one life remaining. Um, so it was it was very very close there. You probably don't have any idea what I'm talking about, do you? Uh, I don't, but I am impressed by how incredibly specific that was. It's <laughs> clearly something that bothered you for a while. Yeah, you know, Sonic 2 had that last boss that it was just, it was a nightmare. It was really <laughs> a nightmare. And uh, that's the game I grew up with, so. Uh, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you fought through it. Yeah, you know, I've exercised those demons since purchased the uh, Sega Genesis collection for my PlayStation 3, so now I can, now I can fight that battle anytime I choose. <laughs> um, but it is really impressive. I think the nature of it that it did happen, like you said, on the on the very last out of the game, um, was just proof that the Red Sox could kind of fight through everything, and that that sort of the death punch uh, in the in the Toronto series came, I believe, in the seventh with that Ortiz blast that made it nine to seven. So um, yeah, a little bit more drama there, but certainly both were were hugely important wins, and I think. I'm probably underselling uh, still how New England uh, in general feels about beating the Yankees um, because for the last few years I I got to be honest like I have thought about Toronto a little bit more often than I have the Yankees just because they're they've been the better team for the last couple of seasons they've loaded up with a bunch of superstars and really up until recently the Red Sox Yankees uh, dynamic hasn't had all that much juice so I think that. That probably had me thinking a little bit more about Toronto. I mean, right now, the Yankees are... Uh, I might like the Yankees the most out of any other team in the division. <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably close between the Yankees and Baltimore. Uh, it's pretty easy to dislike the Blue Jays if you're not a Blue Jays fan. And I hate the Rays. God, I hate the, I hate the Rays so much. Um, so you're right. It was good to infuse a little bit of that rivalry feel. Uh, back into it, but I think I think we're only saying some of the rivalry feeling is back because we swept them. <laughs> they probably don't feel like the rivalry is back yet. No, it's going to be a while. They're they're going to need that. Uh, what is it? The 2018 off season where Bryce Harper and Manny Machado and Jose Fernandez and pretty much everybody good becomes available, right? Right. Yeah. That, maybe, yeah. Maybe that's Machado what they're going to need. Will, uh, Machado will finally not be mad about that Rick Porcello hit by pitch earlier tonight. By the time the Yankees sign him, <laughs> we can only hope. Um, so yeah, that, that's going to be interesting though, when that happens, but until then the Yankees still have a long ways to go, but we talked about it last week on the podcast, uh, me and Joyner about which team you'd like for the next three seasons. And we both said the Yankees, like 
out of this division with the uncertainty that there is in Toronto with their impending free agents and and all that stuff, we both think that it's going to be New York that's probably the most dangerous team over that period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think between the young talent and the fact that they're going to have so much money coming off the books, you know, they're wouldn't surprise me if they become sort of the Dodgers East in terms of still going after a few marquee guys, but also trying to build from within a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So with that win aside and that series down, um, there's, you know, a bunch of things to talk about as to why that happened. But I think there's no bigger thing to point to um, than the bullpen resurgence that we've seen over the last few weeks. Um, Tim Britton wrote about this yesterday when he wrote about uh, Koji Uihara and how well he's been doing. Um, but in that article, he, he pointed out that the Red Sox currently have a 1.14 ERA out of the bullpen uh, during September, which has been tremendous. Um, and they're actually 6-1 and one in the second half of the season uh, when getting knocked out, when the starter gets knocked out before the fourth inning. Uh, and that stat is per Alex Sphere of the Boston Globe. So when I read those two stats together in a couple different articles, I was like, whoa. I mean, this unit really has been performing its job admirably for a little while. And then I read another stat that was, um, I can't remember what who the pitchers were, but it was like six pitchers on the Red Sox out of their bullpen. Six key guys haven't allowed a run in the last 37 innings. So there's a whole bunch of good stuff happening in that unit right now. Um, and I wanted to you know, kind of get your take on it. Do you think it's just guys performing better, or do you think there's some element of, the September call-ups, guys pitching less frequently, things like that that have factored into this resurgence. Yeah, I think there are a few things that are real, and I think it's also partially a case of, you know, the Red Sox bullpen probably isn't as good as they appear right now, and it was not as bad as it seems in those few weeks in the middle of the season when it was blowing a lead in the eighth inning every night. Uh, what I think is real is Koji Uihara, since he's returned, looks like a totally – uh, legitimate eighth inning guy, and if you add him to Ziegler with Kimbrell, that's that's a lot of like all of a sudden that's a, a playoff caliber back end of the bullpen. Um, you know, Matt Barnes would fall more into the category of I think he's just on a really good stretch right now, and I, I don't think he's this good, and I don't think he's as bad as he was earlier. Um, some of the other guys, I'm I'm not falling for Joe Kelly the way some other people are, but I'm at least optimistic. And at this point, you know, I would I would have him on the postseason roster over Juniki Tozawa or Fernando Abad. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not really clamoring for Kelly to make the postseason roster, but he's at least a more interesting option for me. Um, and then Robbie Scott, you know, it's really early. It's only been four or five innings, but he looks like he could potentially take the left inning. I'm uh, sorry, the Lugie, the Lugie spot from, from Abad. Uh, I certainly don't think he's going to be an elite option, but you don't really need an elite option to be, to be better than Fernando Abad. So I think it's just that puzzle coming together, you know, I believe the last time we spoke, you and I went back and forth on whether or not they should DFA Junichi Tozawa, and we sort of decided, or maybe maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here, maybe it was more me, but the verdict was that, well, you know, September call-ups are only two weeks away, you know, you don't need to DFA Tozawa just to call up Hembry or someone like that, and you know, in hindsight, they probably should have uh, DFA'd him and called up someone a little bit more reliable, because... They still ended up using Tozawa in, in spots that you know you don't you don't want to use just a mop up man a few times. But right. That is past them now, and you know all of a sudden you go into the postseason hopefully uh, with Kimbrel and Uihara and Ziegler and Barnes and Robbie Ross, and then you know a few out of the Kelly and Scott and uh, Heath Hembry 
molds, and uh, all of a sudden it doesn't doesn't look so bad. Yeah, I I think um, you covered off on a lot of things right there, but I want to kind of key in on a couple of them. Um, Robbie Scott is really intriguing, and I think that he does probably negate the need for Fernando Abad on this team because Abad, as you so aptly wrote about in your Bad Names for Relievers piece, which was really good. Um, for those of you who haven't read that, you should check it out. Um, ben basically goes down the gamut of um, pitchers with names that insinuate them being bad performers and how they've actually performed. And uh, no secret that Abad has been, well, Abad. Um, I, I do think that he doesn't have a place on the team if Robbie Scott can continue to do what he's doing. And there's been no indication in the minors or so far over four and two-thirds scoreless innings here um, that he's had that say that he is not that guy. Um, and he's a really interesting score, story, you know, playing independent ball, being purchased over out of there. I believe he was pitching for Yuma um, in yes. independent ball. Um, but he looked amazing the last couple outings. I mean, he, he went against some pretty serious um, hitters in those lineups and, and handled them admirably. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on making that switch right there? Uh, I guess I'm less confident in Scott being amazing than I am sure that Abad is not, if that makes any sense. Uh, I do like Scott's story a lot. You know, he is a 27-year-old who is having success in, in AAA, but at the same time, you know, Relievers can just pop up and be good. You don't have to be as worried about him as you would, you know, a position player or a starting pitcher or something like that. So I certainly think it's possible that he has a role as a solid piece in a in a first division bullpen moving forward. Uh, I don't want to get carried away, but you know, his triple slash line in Triple A against lefties was uh, 147, 206, 253, with about a 30 percent K rate. So. That's about as good as you're going to get and still be in the minors against the uh, same-sided pitching. So it'll be uh, it'll be worth it to see what he could do. You know, I'd, I'd love to see Farrell use him, I don't know, six or seven times in the next 15 games or so as we close out the season just to see what he's got. Right. Um, you know, he'd be among my first cuts when we're getting down to the 25-man roster. But uh, like I said, I'd rather have him over a bot. I'd rather have him over Chinji Tozawa as much as it sort of hurts me to say that because Tozawa's been – Really, just a very good Red Sox for a long time. But uh, in 2016, it's, it's it, I don't see it happening. So I think there is an outside shot that he actually finds his way on the postseason roster, but we need to see a little bit more first. Yeah, I think you've got Kimbrell, Yuihara, Ziegler as locks, Barnes as a lock, Robbie Ross as a lock. Um, after that, I think I'd rather have Robbie Scott than Noe Ramirez, than Henry Owens, um, definitely than Tozawa in a bod, like you said. Um, and then when you get to guys like Joe Kelly and Heath Embry, it gets a little bit more dicey. I probably would still take those two over Robbie Scott if that's what it took, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I think I would too, except for the fact that, you know, Rob, Robbie Ross is a decent relief pitcher, but he's not necessarily a phenomenal loogie. Right. Um, so there is there's something to be said for keeping Scott, you know, as that guy that you can go to specifically just to get lefties. Uh, but the other question is, and maybe I'm preempting you a little bit here, but it seems like they might end up putting Drew Pomeranz in the bullpen for the for the postseason because he has experience there, and clearly he's hitting a little bit of a wall, and, and he might end up being that you know first lefty out of the pen. Yeah, that would be really interesting too. I wonder if 
that's going to take the rest of the season to decide. I mean, they're probably going to give Pomerantz two or probably three more starts, right, before the end of the season. Yeah. Um, so we'll get three more looks at what he can do. And then, like you said, probably give Robbie Scott five or six, maybe more, appearances. It would be, it'd be cool if it was more, but we're not really sure how that usage is going to all turn out. Um, but, yeah, it, it's certainly a possibility. I, I think Pomerantz would be a pretty outstanding addition to the back end of the pen. But there's going to be a lot of guys, and the fact that we're talking about all these guys uh, and having trouble right now figuring out who we'd cut from the 25-man roster uh, going into the playoffs uh, is a really good thing for a part of the team that really just two, three weeks ago we were looking at as the Achilles heel to a team that had started pitching much better in the second half of the year. And the offense, we all know what the offense and the uh, the defense and the field can do. So really it was the last hole uh, on a contender that really has very few holes. So the fact that that is, that is filled now is is really intriguing. Uh, yeah, I'm, I think you're a little, maybe a little more optimistic than me. I still think it's the biggest weakness on this team. Um, but, you know, with Price and Porcello pitching the way they are, you're not really going to have to use guys before the seventh or maybe even the eighth, hopefully. Um, and, you know, that'll change against really good playoff teams. But, you know, if you only need to get through two or three innings with this bullpen, you're, you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, absolutely. You can feel good about that and have plenty of guys to mix and match in the back if if your starters are giving you those numbers of innings. So when we look around the division, though, and we look at um, some of the other clubs in the American League that are about to make the playoffs, um, I suddenly find myself looking at the standings and uh, looking at some of these different clubs like Toronto, Baltimore, Texas, and the Indians, and finding way more problems with their clubs uh, than what the Red Sox have. And I don't think this is a case of me just being too close to it and following the Red Sox all the time. It really does seem like the Red Sox are starting to hit their stride in a lot of areas where we're seeing teams like Toronto um, and like the Indians especially um, either perform badly or have things happen to them. Now the Indians have lost two-thirds of their starting rotation with Danny Salazar and Carlos Carrasco. Uh, possibly out for the remainder of the season. I believe Salazar's already been rolled out, and Carrasco has a broken hand, so um, the odds of them coming back are slim to none. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your take on how you feel the Red Sox um, place within a bunch of those teams right now in terms of you know the health of their chances going forward here. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I. I think this. I think the Indians drop substantially behind them now. Um, I thought they might be the biggest competition a few weeks ago, but I mean, taking Carrasco and Salazar away from the Indians is is enormous. I kind of like Trevor Bauer, but he doesn't exactly strike fear into your heart. And then you're talking about you know what Josh Josh Tomlin, Mike Clevenger. Yeah, Clevenger's uh, been pitching for you know no time. Right. He's exactly. So young. So, you know, you could turn around and say the back half of the Red Sox rotation doesn't inspire a lot of fear either. But, you know, as, as shaky as they've been at points, I will take Buckholz, Rodriguez, and Pomeranes over Bauer, Tomlin, and Clevenger. Um, and then the Red Sox clearly have a much better offense than the Indians. Bullpen, you'd probably give a slight nod to the Indians, but not, not enough to make up that gap. So I think the Red Sox are, are pretty clearly a better team than the Indians now. 
Um, I think they're pretty clearly a better team than the Orioles. The Orioles scare me a little bit in a short series just because, you know, Gosman is, Gosman's a good pitcher. Bundy can look good at times, although the Red Sox sort of seem to have his number. Um, but, you know, their bullpen is so good, and they also have a dangerous offense. So Yeah, it can know, hit it, bombs and droves. Yeah, exactly. So it wouldn't shock me if the Orioles are able to beat a team in a five-game series. But I also think they're, you know, pretty clearly behind the Red Sox. Uh, the Blue Jays and Rangers, I think, are probably who I'd put right closer to the same tier. I like the Rangers a lot. They have a really athletic team. They can, they can, they can make you mess up. <laughs> they can make you, they can hurt you in lots of different ways. Uh, their bullpen isn't super inspiring, but it, it's sort of deep. They have a lot of options. Um, but their pitching uh, is very. It, it's it's going to be interesting to see. You know, can Darvish come back and be healthy? If the answer is yes, then okay, you know, you roll into it with Darvish and Hamels as your top two. That's pretty legit. If not, it gets uh, awfully thin after Hamels as your number one, even thinner than the Red Sox. But I think they're about as good. I think they're in the same tier. And then the Blue Jays uh, still scare the crap out of me. I do think the Red Sox are better, but I'm not at all confident, really. So the thing I can't figure out, though, with the Rangers, though, is – how they're outperforming their Pythagorean record to this degree. We talked about it a little bit last week on the show. I mean, they're close to on paper with, you know, expected wins um, to being like a 500 club. And they've outperformed that to a massive degree this year. Um, Their run differential doesn't say they should be this good. You already mentioned the weakness in, in the bullpen. And even the guys at the top, Cole Hamels and you, Darvish, I mean, Darvish is just, he's always just a, a slight ailment away from being out of that rotation. And Cole Hamels, as good as he's been at times, has had a lot of blow-up games too. Um, so it does kind of appear to me that this team is not nearly as strong as their record indicates. And I don't know if, if I'm a Rangers fan right now, I'm petrified of playing a team like the Red Sox because I don't know how long my you know, MLB leading almost historical uh, record in one-run games is going to take me. I don't know where all these things that have seemingly worked out in my favor all year are going to take me come playoff time against a good team. Sure, sure, sure. And I, you know, if we're looking at these teams over this, I think the Red Sox are a better team than the Rangers. However, going into a postseason matchup, you have to be a little scared of a team that can run out Darvish and Hamels as their one-two. Sure. Uh, you know, Martin Perez isn't spectacular, but he's not a laughable option there. Um, he, he, I prefer Price and Porcello by a decent margin this year, but it would not be crazy to have either of those two outduel Price and Porcello on a given day. Uh, and their offense is really good. I mean, they they went out and got Beltran and Lucroy at the deadline. They still have Adrian Beltre hitting in the middle. Right. Uh, Ian, Ian Desmond's having a great year. Rugnit Odor is pretty good. You know, they have a very deep lineup that scares me. So I do think the Red Sox are the better and much deeper team. Um, unfortunately, in the playoffs, depth matters a, a little bit less. Uh, and the Rangers do have enough star power to, to make me nervous. Yeah, if I'm ranking it right now, I think Toronto's still my number one that I'm worried about. And I would have had the Indians number two. But post uh, that most recent injury to Carrasco... I think Texas does take that number two spot of teams I'm worried about facing. Yeah, so it sounds like we're the same, just with the Rangers and Blue Jays flipped. Yeah, yep, okay. definitely. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yep. So as we look towards the playoffs, though, two things are clear, and we've already talked about that a little bit, that Porcello and Price are going to be 
in some order our game one and two starters. Um, you know, if they have to play a play-in game, we can talk about who they'd rather put in there. So I guess let's do that right now. Um, if all things go badly over the next 13 or so remaining games, and they actually have to play that game number 163, who would you throw in there out of Porcello and Price? Oof. Um, right now, Porcello, because I, I would go with the hot hands. Um, but, you know, they have a few... <laughs> whoever had the best two starts, I guess, the better last two starts out of those two, right. is who I'd go with, because... I think Price is a little better. I think Porcello is hotter. Um, so gun to my head, Porcello, but I would have a hard time being angry at John Farrell, regardless of who he picks there. Yeah, it's hard to go against Porcello. Um, uh, I it think might, it might depend on lineup a little bit too. I guess. Yeah. You know, if you're running someone, if you get a lineup with five lefties in it, you probably go with Price. Yeah, if you're going against Toronto, it's probably Porcello. Right. Yeah, so um, I guess all things equal, I'm probably with you on running out Porcello right now instead, only because I just feel like Porcello has been a little bit more consistent. And even in games where I've seen him not get all the calls, like I believe the last time he pitched, there was a sequence where he just threw three balls right on the outside corner. And, you know, pitch FX had them as strikes, but the umpire did not call them as such. Um, and I've just seen him continue to be able to battle back from things like that all season long. He's just so locked in right now. His command is uh, second to none, and I think he can limit the damage probably more than anybody in the rotation. Um, and you couple that with Price's postseason struggles that he's had, I think that that's probably why I'd lean Porcello there. Are you concerned at all about Price's postseason record? Because really it hasn't been good, and we haven't talked about it at all on the show because, frankly, we haven't been thinking about the postseason uh, in any seriousness since the last couple of weeks. But, I mean, what do you make of that? No. Uh, I think as soon as he has one good postseason start, it goes away. Uh, anything, in, I, I don't know. I'm not in the man's head. Would it surprise me if it's eating away at him a little bit? No, not at all, and, you know, that can be dangerous when you start dwelling on it. But uh, the sample size just isn't big enough for me to think that he's some sort of incredible choker or something like that. He, he's been too good for too long. Uh, so I don't, I don't really put any stock into that yet. Um, if anything, it's, 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 it's just him beating himself up over it. I don't think it's any sort of, you know, real deficiency or inability to pitch in the clutch. What do you think is more important for the postseason? Do you think it's command or do you think it's stuff? Because I think if you're looking at it in a bubble, Price has obviously got the better stuff. He's got the more dangerous stuff. But Porcello, almost every outing out there, has gone out there and had the better command. I think Price's command's been much, much improved the last two months especially, um, which is a big correction from where we saw him in the first half. And I can't remember who it was at our site did a really good job of breaking down his uh, first, first pitch strike percentage. Uh, throughout the year, um, yeah. and that has gotten better as the season's gone on. But which one of those things do you value more heading into a postseason game? That's hard to answer in a nutshell. I think I think there's actually an argument to be made for stuff when you have an offense this good behind you, right? Uh, because you know, sort of the ceiling is higher. 
uh, and you can you can you can make up a little ground if if you get hit around. On the flip side, that's also an argument for command because you know would you rather <laughs> basically would you rather have a, a pitcher who has a sixty percent shot of shutting someone down but a forty percent shot of giving up five runs or a pitcher with I don't know an eighty percent shot of giving up three runs and a twenty percent shot of giving up five runs. And that's sort of the Porcello versus Price debate. Um, so I could I could see it either way. I think I'm gonna I'm still gonna take the easy way out and say I think it would be dependent on their last few starts and the lineup they're going up against. But um, if it was tomorrow, you know, if the season ended today, Porcello has has earned it. Yeah. Well, either way, we're splitting hairs with those two because we're gonna feel really good regardless of who's pitching yes. games one or two or who is in that single game playoff series and if. You know, if everything turns out terrible and they end up having to play that one game and one of those two guys pitches and the team loses, I don't think we're going to go into the offseason and point to that being the reason why the team lost the game. So, Not at all. But, uh, so, Jake, while we're talking about Price, I remember, I think it was either late June or very early July, we talked about Price when I, when I was on the podcast, and... Mm-hmm. You were you were sort of of the opinion that uh, the only way he could redeem the season would be if the Red Sox win the World Series, and he's a big he's a big reason why in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like Price has redeemed himself at all yet, or, or has he not earned your trust yet? Uh, I think that he has largely. I think I'm like eighty five percent of the way there. You know, yeah. the, the trust meter was at zero for right. me <laughs> going into that discussion, and, and since then. Uh, it's been something like to the tune of three months with an ERA under three. Uh, and throughout that time, there's there have still been a couple of starts in there where he has looked hittable. You know, last one was, was one of those starts um, where he did kind of look a little bit iffy. But for the most part, he's been doing his job, and he's been looking really good doing it. He's been pitching deep into games. So I think I'm, I'm close to being to the point where I do trust him. But I still think... I'm not to the point where he needs to pull a full cart shilling and like be the hero of the World Series for me to, um, to for me to trust him. But he he does need to go out there in a postseason game and pitch and win for me to feel like all right, we got what we were promised from David Price this year. I don't think I'll feel that way until that happens. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's fair. And that asking you well, that wasn't meant to pick on you. I mean, we we. Uh... We spoke about him, uh, and he was bad. Yeah, he was. <laughs> like three or four really starts bad. in a row, he had been awful when we had that discussion. Yeah, no, that's a fair question. Um, and I think a lot of people's opinions have, have been changing about him. And it still is a little bit troubling that those struggles did happen early on. It makes me a little bit concerned going forward. Like, you know, was this really just an adjustment type thing or was this some regression and are we seeing him pitch a little bit above his head right now? Like I'm, I'm still trying to sort out what's real and what's fake. The peripherals have been backing him up all season long. Um, we've talked about this a number of times in the show, DRA and CFIP, uh, a couple of baseball prospectus stats have loved him all season long. And when Joyner was on, he even pointed out that he has surpassed a couple of other Cy Young candidates. I believe it was, Sale and Hamels in uh, CFIP and DRA recently. He's still behind Kluber in those categories, but um, you know it's it's just impressive that he has been able to write that ship. 
For sure, and especially because this is not the easiest place to to write a ship. Uh, so he's done a, done a good job of blocking it all out and getting back to being who we knew he was. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to those three spots behind those two guys. So when we get to the postseason, we're obviously shortening up the rotation, and not all of these guys are going to be in it. So um, out of Pomerantz, Rodriguez, and Buckholz, I wanted to first break down these guys, look into their advanced metrics a little bit, and help you determine – Help. I want you to help me determine which of these guys uh, we should be relying on come postseason. So – uh, let's talk Pomerantz first. Um, how does he compare to Rodriguez and Buckholz in terms of some of these advanced statistics? So it's difficult because DRA and CFIP don't let you break down by which team he was on. So all we can see is his DRA for the entire season, which is at 326, uh, and his CFIP, which is at 84. Um, and those are both uh, a, a good deal better than anything that Erod or Buckholz has. Of course, that doesn't really take into account the way the arms are trending, which would probably have Erod trending the highest, Buckles in the middle, and Pomeranz the lowest. Uh, I do think we might be overreacting to Pomeranz's last few starts a little bit, just because he's also been pretty pretty good at times with the Red Sox. Uh, it's not like he's come over here and just laid an egg every single time he's taken the mound. That being said... Um, you know, his last two starts have been god-awful. And his two starts before that were good, but not not crazy. But still, I mean, he had a solid streak of one, two... Sorry, now I'm trying to do math in my head, and this, is, this never ends well for me. Uh, <laughs> looks like he had a streak of seven games where four of them were quality starts. Okay. And in a few of those other, you know, one of them was a 5.2 instead of a six innings, or that also would have been a quality start. Uh, one of them was the, the rain-shortened five-inning game, which looked to be his best. So really he had a streak where six out of seven were, were, were very very good or at least acceptable starts. Obviously the last two have been absolutely disastrous against, against very good teams, and it should be noted that his success came against the Rays, the Padres, uh, the Indians, you know, teams with, with not, not offensive juggernaut teams. Yeah, middling offense at best, really. Right, exactly. So I get being down on Pomerantz, especially because of the workload. Uh, and to me, he does look a little bit tired out there. Uh, the mechanics don't look tight. You know, he looks like he's laboring after four or five innings when he does make it that far. So I, I put a little bit of stock into the I think he might be, be tired um, line of reasoning. Well, I, I think that that's been kind of the thing that everybody's pointed to. Um is is fatigue because he is so far ahead already of what his innings limit had been or his his max innings had been and it's been noted that a bunch of the innings that uh he did pitch when he did reach those limits were in the minor leagues so they're not exactly completely comparable either um but matt collins who's going to be on the show next week did a really good job of kind of breaking down some of these different things and sorting through you know, what's real and what wasn't in terms of the reasons why Pomerantz could be struggling in a recent article. He did this um, and he determined that kind of just like he just had a bad outing like that was that was his determination. There was nothing conclusive. So do you sort of agree with that or do you think that there is something to this fatigue narrative? I <laughs> I mean, I. 
he'd have a better idea than I do, but I, I do think there is something to it. I mean, he has the frame to log innings, so I don't think he's a guy who's destined to not be able to throw 200 innings for his entire career. But he's at 165, and he's never thrown this much before, and, and it's late in the season, and he's throwing some high-stress innings, too. You know, he's pitching against really, really good lineups in a, in a pennant race. So I, uh, I, I do think that he, he might very well be tired, whereas, you know, Ed and Buckles have missed time this year, or Buckles spent time in the bullpen. Uh, I think their arms are just a little bit fresher. Yeah, I would agree with that. But it is worth noting, and I'll, and I'll mention that here, um, I'm looking at uh, some some fan graph stats for these guys too. So uh, going away from DRA and CFIP using Sierra, which is their uh, sort of advanced metric for pitchers, over the last 30 days, Drew Pomerantz is still uh, the leader in Sierra out of those three by a pretty large margin, 362 ERA versus uh, 469, I, sh- I should say Sierra, um, for Buckholz and then a 576 Sierra for Eddie. So uh, even in that time period, Drew Pomerantz still looks like the best option out of those three. Yeah, and you know when I when I spoke earlier about Pomerantz potentially going into the bullpen for the postseason, uh, I, I'm just saying it's it's an idea because he has experience there. But I still think it's it's very much an open race between those three for for two spots. Um, and Stephen Wright might even make it interesting if he comes back, although that's that's looking less and less likely. But, you know, if Pomerantz goes out and his next three starts are really good, he's, he's still has a very good claim to be the number three starter in October. Yeah, that's the way that I'd lean right now. Um, and the reason is because with Rodriguez and Buckholz, they've just been so trick-or-treat, um, not only through this season, but throughout their entire careers. And the idea of putting one of those guys out there in a postseason game uh, when everything's on the line just doesn't seem reasonable to me at this point. Like, you're going to have to do it with one of these two guys. And out of those two, I really don't have any idea who I'd feel better with right now. I keep thinking it's Eduardo Rodriguez, but then he does stuff like he did last outing. Um, And he does that frequently. So I'm not sure. I even was recently reading an article where these two were being compared to each other with how enigmatic they can both be. Um, And that was really frustrating because I was like, hey, leave Eduardo alone. But then I looked back at his game log and I was like, wow, these two do look eerily similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a little bit of a crapshoot that way. And because of that, my thinking is that Farrell will go with the veteran and throw buckles, uh, which is, you know, sort of hard to argue with. I think the biggest counter-argument is that both Pomeranz and Buckles have experience in the bullpen. Um, then again, Buckles didn't until this year. He, he turned out to be okay there. So maybe you bring Ed in as your lefty and you say, hey, can you please throw 95 ten times to this left-handed, these two left-handed batters? Uh, and he becomes a weapon out there. But it's, it's going to be interesting, and I, I really think the next three starts for each of these starters is going to go a very long way toward determining what they do. Yeah, it's going to be something that we watch uh, quite closely over the last few weeks, but certainly if you want to point towards a point of the team that still hasn't really been sorted out very much, and I think even less than the back end of the bullpen has, is this situation. So it's going to be something to watch. Um, Over the next 10 games, including the game that's going on tonight as we record this, where the Red Sox are actually currently winning 5-1 to uh, behind another strong Porcello performance, uh, the Red Sox are on their really last tough stretch of the season. 
Um, they've got a 10-game road trip coming up where they play a four-game set in Baltimore. Uh, then they go down to Tampa Bay for three. I have a day off, and then they close their uh, road schedule this season with three games in Yankee Stadium. Um, interestingly enough, the Tampa Bay Rays are the only ones not honoring David Ortiz this entire year. Isn't that strange? Yeah, it's 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 strange, but at the same time, do you really want to be honored at Tropicana Field? I feel like you just you don't want to spend any more time at that dumpster fire than you have to. Uh, so in a way, that's their gift to him. You know what I hope? I hope that um, the construction company that ends up being paid to demolish Tropicana Field in like three or four years when the team leaves um, allows David Ortiz to come back and drive the wrecking ball. I love that idea, but I don't. I don't think they're going to have to demolish it. They just need to wait another like six months, and that thing's going to collapse in on itself. Uh, <laughs> but maybe they can hire Ortiz to, to drive one of the dump trucks away. You know, there are a lot of mass transplants in Florida, so it wouldn't exactly surprise me if that's a Massachusetts-owned company that's going to end up doing that. It's not a bad point. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be an easy slate here, but the Red Sox seem very intent and very acutely aware, as Robbie Ross you know, pointed out in discussion with a few reporters, um, that they're going to be playing this last 10-game road trip extremely hard, and they realize kind of what's at stake here. They don't want to play that one-game playoff. It's going to be full you know, pedal to the floor the rest of the way out to try and win as many games as possible. Because there's still a bunch of things at play. There's avoiding that one-game playoff. There's catching the ailing um, Indians for the second seed in the playoffs, which I believe they're only one game behind them right now for that spot. So there's a whole lot of things that the Red Sox can do to better their chances in the postseason by continuing to play well in these last couple series. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think I think the hope is that Maybe by the end of the Yankee series or their last home series, you know, you can at least sit Ortiz. Although I don't know if I don't know if they're going to have the balls to sit Ortiz during his last Fenway series. That would be a rough a rough sell to the crowd. Um, <laughs> but hopefully, you can start resting a few of these veteran guys here and there. But especially for these this upcoming series against uh, against the Blue Jays, and then for um, or I'm sorry, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, especially against the uh, the Orioles and the Blue Jays. There is no reason not to go not to go balls to the wall and really try to bury these teams. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, out of these upcoming series uh, against the 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 Rays and the Yankees after Baltimore, I think I'm actually more concerned about the Rays uh, going forward because it seems like the evil pesky Rays, uh, which you're acutely aware of hating as much as you do, um, have been like really a, a little bit of a thorn in the side of the Red Sox this year, even though the Red Sox have performed overall well against them. Um, there have been three or four games that have been looking like wins for the majority of the game, and then those games have been taken away from them in some fashion or another late in the game. Um, I, I feel as though the Red Sox have sort of taken the life completely out of the Yankees after that last series, so I'd be surprised if they don't win two out of three there. But that, that Tampa series has some potential uh, to, to scare me a little bit. So I want to get your thoughts on, on those remaining series. Uh, I mean, it scares me because they're throwing Archer and Odorizzi, but the Red Sox really have Chris Archer's number. Uh, they, they really don't seem to mind facing him at all. So I'm sure the Rays will be a pain in the ass and take one game. Uh, they just need to make sure they, they hold it to one game. 
Um, you know, of this 10-game road strip, I think the Red Sox will be fine if they go 6-4 and four, and in phenomenal shape if they go 7-3, and three, probably. Or if they go 10-0. and 0. Well, if they go 10-0, uh, you know, fire Farrell. Yeah. I'll, I'll be the first to call for his head, inevitably. <laughs> but certainly not the only. Yeah, no. I'm, I get irrationally mad about that, about everything that guy does. But, you know, that's that's part of following this thing for 162 games as close as we do that we uh we tend to overanalyze and uh especially in july and august which is the worst because you've just been doing it for so long (laughs) but still somehow every loss just feels so magnified so uh i get the frustrations yeah but you know what when i read that second half stat after the pitcher gets knocked out when they have been six and one in those games um in the second half like i mentioned I, I was almost, like, ashamed of being mad at Farrell in his bullpen usage. I was like, man, he really is doing something right when when those situations occur, you know? It's either that or it's either he's pulling the right strings or guys have come up and really stepped up for him in big spots, but it's probably a combination of both of those things happening, and that alone is impressive enough, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, my stance on Farrell has always been, uh, you know, could he improve? Certainly. Is he actively hurting the team? No. Um, I, I think he's, I don't know, maybe the 10th or 12th best manager in the game, something in that range. <laughs> uh, you know, there are plenty of better ones, but he's he's not he's never been something holding the team down. Um, and even though I think he is not certainly not a great tactical manager, uh, his, his team likes him and plays for him, and that, that's pretty important, especially in Boston. Yep, absolutely. So the way that this uh, upcoming schedule shapes out uh, after tonight's game, which we mentioned is Porcello versus Bundy, um, we've got Eduardo Rodriguez versus Kevin Gosman, who looked excellent against the Red Sox last time out. They just couldn't figure him out, and he was still pumping 97 past Sandra Bogarts in the eighth inning. So that was quite impressive from him. Um, we've got Buckholtz versus Giovanni Gallardo in what could be a real suck fest there. Um, Price versus Ubaldo Jimenez in the last game of that series. And then we've got Pomerantz versus Archer, Porcello versus Matt Andrizi, and Eduardo Rodriguez again versus Jake Odorizzi, who has been good against the Red Sox, but sort of middling against everybody else this season. Yeah, it's not the easiest stretch because they are getting Gosman, Archer, and Odorizzi, but, I mean... How mad can you really be when you also get to face Gallardo Jimenez and Andresi? Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is a, a seven-game stretch, barring something pretty awful they're going to win tonight. Um, I don't think it's crazy to hope for five and two, and if they're four and four and three, the world will keep on spinning. Yep, absolutely. I think that they've got to be favored in most of those games. So, yeah, other than tomorrow, tomorrow it's going to be hard to it'll be hard to be mad at them if they lose tomorrow. Gosman is uh, Gosman is better than Ed. Yes, he is, and he's an LSU product, so that's that's a good thing. Um, one thing that we didn't get to talk about yet, which I kind of wanted to close with, was uh, Hanley Ramirez, and you know we've talked about how good he's been as of late, and I'll give you a few more stats on him over the last month or so, or uh, 16 games this month, and this is, again, pulled from uh, 108 stitches, Alex Spears, column which is so good i urge all of you to subscribe to that um 
He's currently batting 381 in the American League, uh, tied for third in the American League in September. Um, he's first in OPS. He's tied for first in home runs. Uh, he's basically been completely unconscious in the month of September, um, which kind of brings me to the whole discussion of, like, where do the Red Sox go with this guy going forward? There's a few different things that can happen um, post this season, um, they can keep him, they can move him to DH, they can keep him at first base, they can go out and sign Eduardo or, uh, I'm sorry, um, Edwin Ed Carnacion to play DH, keep him at first, or they can sign somebody else to play first, or you can try and trade a guy who's probably going to close the year with close to a 300 batting average, 30 plus home runs, and over 100 RBIs to someone else for the last two years of his contract. And I'm kind of curious where you're thinking they should go with this because the value is really going to be at an all-time high coming off this season. Yeah, absolutely not trading him. Uh, they're losing their, you know, perhaps best or second best all-around offensive player in David Ortiz. Uh, I don't think Hanley will be this good again, but I, I come on. I mean, they're going to compete next year. They should be competitive again next season. You absolutely can't trade him. It's not like they have good in-house options waiting to replace him in the wings. Um, I am pretty partial to the idea of signing Encarnacion if the money isn't crazy. Uh, I think it would be nice to sort of shift those guys between first base and DH. Uh, hopefully Encarnacion will only needs like a three-year deal. You know, if he needs a four- or five-year deal, I, I totally understand walking away. But it is going to be pretty damn difficult to replace David Ortiz, and, and the way you do that is not by also trading Hanley. So that is certainly not what I would go with. Um, I would like him to at least be able to get some time at DH next season because I think that will keep him healthy. Uh, and we know he hits really well when he's a DH. But, I mean, for the most part, heads into next year as your number four header and your primary first baseman. Um, the Red Sox need to get a left-handed bat to break up, you know, Pedroia, Bogarts, Betts, and Hanley in the front four. But other than that, um, you know, not, not nothing really other than to expect good things, especially with how competent he's looked defensively at first base. So I'll preface this by saying I'm 100% on the same side as you with this. I want to see him back next year, and I want to see him as the everyday first baseman. Um, I'm also into the idea of signing Encarnacion, and I'm totally okay with going for four years on him. Uh, I think he'll still perform at that time, especially considering you're signing him to be your DH in that situation. Um, but the argument against keeping Hanley Ramirez is that He's a guy who has reportedly over the course of his career required a lot of mental maintenance in the clubhouse. David Ortiz has you know, been for years, even when he wasn't playing on the Red Sox, um, that Hanley wasn't. Uh, David Ortiz has been a guy who he calls for advice and generally somebody that he respects a tremendous amount. So there's the, the, the theory out there that Hanley could become a locker room liability without David Ortiz around to kind of police the situation. So what do you say to people that think that? Um, I hope you enjoy listening to WEEI, and please never speak to me in person. <laughs> yeah, I don't buy into that much at all either. I think that uh, I think it's pretty clear that last year when he didn't perform, it was because he was put in a really terrible position to perform. He was put in left field where he was terrible, uh, and where he got himself hurt because left field is where good players that I like go to die, a la Swihart. Um 
and then he played the rest of the year injured and yeah. wasn't able to come back from that, and that's why he wasn't good. And there was no reason to rush him back from that because the Red Sox were terrible. Right. So, like, yeah, no, this is, you know what this is? This is Boston fans being afraid to be happy. They don't know what to do <laughs> because their team is in first place, so they need to invent potential issues for 2017. No, Hanley is fine, and if that's what you think, you don't deserve nice things. <laughs> All right, well, I couldn't have said it much better myself. Uh, that's a good way to close out the show. So uh, Hanley's here whether you like it or not, people. Um, so get used to the idea. Um, it'll be a much nicer thing to get used to, too, once he continues to hit like this and uh, we get another World Series here and the Yankees uh, get to look at that shiny trophy next year. I, and, you know, I would love if they held off the ring ceremony until they got to Fenway, but that won't happen. Um, so with that, I think um, we're going to close this out. So you got anything else you want to add, Ben? Uh, no, I don't. Hopefully the next time uh, you and I are on this podcast together, we are uh, we're, we're debating how who the Red Sox should be starting in the midst of their, what, second playoff series? Maybe early third by that time? Yeah, uh, I would assume it would be ALCS. Yeah, probably, probably. Yep, so let's, let's hope you're on again. Um, so with that, you can follow us on uh, Twitter. You can follow me at, at DevJake. You can follow Ben at, at BenCarsley. Um, you can follow this podcast, uh, subscribe to it on iTunes. You can also subscribe to it on Stitcher. Uh, and you can rate and review us on both of those places as well. Uh, you can also submit a question to us via a question box on any of our Red Seat podcasts on the BP Boston website. Um, so if you have any questions that you'd like to ask about anything socks, please do it there, uh, and we'll answer it right on the show. Uh, and with that, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And for Ben Carsley, this is Jake Debrill saying uh, we'll see you next time.